that series. And even as I began preparation for this message today, I wasn't thinking about it actually being another one in the series of messages on the cross. However, it certainly could be a part of that. And uh, I don't think, however, that we can ever preach on the cross too much. I know that we can preach about it too little, and that is done in many places today. But it is still true that the preaching of the cross is to those who believe salvation. That's what Paul said, and it is still true. I share with you a message today that I have called, When God Crossed His Hands. Father, I pray that the Holy Spirit will now infuse every word that is spoken in this pulpit today. And I ask you that you will open every heart to receive the fullness of this truth. There are those here today, Lord, who will find difficulty believing some of the things that are said, even though quoted from your word today. I proclaim, Lord, that your word is power, life, and truth. That your word is the spirit of life. And that you, through your word, can bring new life to every single person who will accept it for what it says and believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who rose from the dead. Holy Spirit, today, let this be a time of your great, powerful anointing. And in the lives of people who need a mighty miracle from God, bring that touch, O Lord, that restores and renews and brings new life as only you can. Through your Holy Spirit, through the blood of Jesus our Savior, and in his name, amen. Amen. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight, and now I'm happy all the day. At the cross, the Son of God was declared and manifested as, as God's fulfillment of his plan to prepare his creation for a heavenly home. There the Son of God became the Son of Man so that the sons of men could become the sons of God. There the light of the world was covered in darkness so that we could walk out of darkness into the brilliant eternal light. There, on that skull-shaped hill they called Golgotha, Jesus, at the interlocking of the ages, put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. In that act of giving himself up and his blood being shed, Father God dressed himself in the crimson garments of that sacrifice and courted our love. Through that, we know the word of God is fulfilled in the very beginning of the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verse 15. The word prophesied 
that Jesus would die on the cross. It was put this way. As God spoke to the serpent, Satan, he said, You will bruise his heel, but this seed of the woman, this son of man, this son of victory, will crush your head and destroy you. And that's why Jesus came. The Bible says he appeared here with the plan of salvation to destroy the works of the devil. Just like Genesis 3.15 said he would. There is a theme that begins at that point in the scripture. And that theme continues all the way through all the books of the Old Testament. Crosses over the line into the New Testament. And continues to the last verse of Revelation. And that theme is a crimson cord that says salvation is only through the blood of Jesus. And salvation is only provided through the victory of Jesus at the cross and in his resurrection. The Old Testament is full of the message of the cross. You don't ever have to pass over into the New Testament to to gain the message of the cross once you have the understanding of what these prophecies of the Old Testament mean. The Old Testament scriptures are replete with the message of God declaring the power and the victory of the cross and what the cross means. In those days... Men had no understanding about a cross or about crucifixion. There's no record that anybody in the Old Testament was ever crucified. It took the Romans with all of their cruelty and the imposition of their iron will upon the world to bring crucifixion to the attention of men. And it was they who made it a quote-unquote popular form of punishment, specifically the form of capital punishment. So when the Old Testament was talking about the cross, the people who were talking about it had no knowledge of it. When they saw pictures of the cross, it was a symbol, but they did not know what it symbolized. God knew. God planned it. God put it forth so that we would know the reality of the cross was planned from the very beginning. It was always God's intention that Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, was slain from the foundation of the world. In the very beginning, before we know what the meaning of time was, Father God had planned for his fallen creatures to have a way of salvation through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ of Nazareth on that cross of that dark, bleak day outside the walls of Jerusalem when Jesus was crucified on that old rugged rugged tree. That was... It, 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 was, it was constantly the message. When the, when the word about the tabernacle was given to Moses, God told him how to lay out the furnishings of the tabernacle. And then when you look down on the tabernacle, you see that the furnishings, as God told him to lay them out, form a perfect cross. The last plague that was visited upon the Egyptians as Moses was declaring that his, God's people were to be freed by Pharaoh, to leave the land of bondage and walk into a new land of victory and freedom. Again and again and again, God spoke to Pharaoh. And when you thought he would change his mind, he did, and then he relented, recanted, and changed it back to hold him in bondage. Finally, 
of an innocent lamb and take that blood with a branch of hyssop and sprinkle it on the lintel above the door and on the two side posts of the door and stay inside the house behind that blood with the death angel passing through tonight. The firstborn of this family will die. The Israelites knew it. The Egyptians did not. When that night of the Passover came, and all the Israelites who had heard the word of Moses declaring the word of God and who believed, who shed the blood of that lamb, sprinkled it on the lintel of the doorpost and on the doorpost, again, look at the picture. Hear the blood. Hear the blood. Hear the blood. Again, the picture of the cross. And in that final plague, when the firstborn of the children of all the land of Egypt including Israelites, if they were not behind the blood, were killed, God declared one more time, without shedding of blood, there's no remission for sins. The Apostle Paul recognized it clearly when he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. The pictures of the cross travel through all of the Old Testament. If you will read Isaiah chapter 53, you will find there centuries before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the message of the cross. The declaration of the prophet is that he, the Savior of ours, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And listen now. This is how precise it was prophet went on to say, and by his stripes we are healed. He was bruised. He was wounded. He was striped. Clearly a picture of the sacrifice of Jesus as the will of the Iron Roman Empire was opposed upon him, but at the same time the will of Almighty God was prevailing to provide salvation for all who would believe in Jesus. It's been there on and on and on. The Bible speaks of three primary patriarchs of the, of the people of Israel. They were Abraham, his son Isaac, and Isaac's son Jacob. Again and again you hear it referred to in the scriptures, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's a fascinating record to read the lives of these men in the book of Genesis. I recommend that you go back and read it sometime if you haven't done it in quite a while. And there's some things in there that speak of the cross as powerfully as anything in the New Testament speaks of the cross. Here's one of them. I'm not going to go into all of the story of how Joseph was born next to the last son of uh, Jacob and all the things that Joseph went through, but God took him through a series of events, all recorded in the book of Genesis, that brought him to a final place where he was in authority over all the land of Egypt. His brothers came to him, then they were recognized, and they reunited. He restored them by his forgiveness. And then the last one to come over from Canaan back into Egypt during this time of need and hunger was 
Jacob himself. Jacob, who had become Israel after he wrestled with God, and God spoke to him and said, you've been a rascal up to now. You've been a supplanter. You've been a thief and a destroyer. And now I'm going to take you and change you and transform you from that person into a prince with God. Up to now you've been Jacob, and now you will be Israel. For as a prince you prevailed with God. That's what we want to do all of us, isn't it? So, and so Jacob became Israel. He was still oftentimes referred to as Jacob in certain times of particular importance. His, he, he was named Israel. In the 48th chapter of Genesis, he's spoken of as both Israel and Jacob, the same person. Now, Jacob is the final authoritative patriarch of all of, of Israel, and Israel took his name, which God had given to him. He had 12 sons by a variety of other persons, and those sons of Jacob became the 12 tribes of Israel. So now Jacob is at the end of his life. Joseph has been the, the glue that stuck this family together. He has been the, the, the person of authority and power who had the ability to either scatter and destroy this family or bring them together. And he acted as he always has acted under the leading of God, surrendered to God's will, and brought the family back together, brought his father over into Egypt, where he lived for 17 years before he died. Now, in this event, Genesis chapter 48, Jacob is coming close to the point of his death. He's weakened. He's bedridden. His eyes are dim. He can barely see. But he still is cognizant enough to deal with his children and to fulfill his responsibilities at the end of his death as the patriarch of his family. And so Joseph wants to follow through with the traditions that they have had visited upon them and that they have found to be successful over the years. So he brings his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, to his father Jacob, for Jacob to bless them and to make the birthright blessing and the further blessing that were less than that, but still important, upon his two sons. It was a custom for, and it, and it wasn't necessarily uh, a requirement of God. It was just a custom that grew up among people, not just among the Israelites, but others, that the firstborn son of the family received the blessing of the birthright. All the others could receive blessings as well. That is, the dispensing of property, receiving an inheritance. But the firstborn always received in these customs at least a double portion of the inheritance and a special blessing, which was the blessing of the birthright. Now, sometimes this was violated just because one was born first didn't mean that 
was Jacob's firstborn. And when it came time for Jacob to pass out blessings to all of his family, he said, Reuben, unstable as water, you shall not prevail. And you have offended your father and this family, and you will not receive the birthright. So Reuben didn't receive the birthright of all the tribes of Israel. That passed on to others. I'm simply telling you what the custom was so that you will get the picture of what happened when Joseph brought his two sons to his father Jacob to receive the blessing and the blessing of the birthright. Joseph had two sons. Manasseh was the firstborn, the older one, and Ephraim was the secondborn, the younger son. So Joseph brought his two sons and presented them to his father Jacob for Jacob to pronounce upon them the blessing of the birthright and the favor of the patriarch. And in so doing, prophesy the favor and the blessing of God upon their lives for the future. Here's the record of what happened when Joseph came into the presence of his father Jacob, or Israel, and presented his two sons to them. Genesis chapter 48, and I'm starting with verse 9. Verse 8, I'm sorry. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Because his eyes were dim. Joseph said to his father, These are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. Israel kissed and embraced his grandsons as Joseph brought them near to him. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand, and Manasseh in his left hand, and he guided them, he brought them near him, he guided them up to stand right in front of Jacob or Israel. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed them. Joseph sought to stop him. He thought his father in his dim eyesight had misunderstood and mistaken. But, Joseph, but, but Jacob knew exactly what he was doing. He's being led by the Spirit of God in the spirit of prophecy to proclaim as the Spirit of God would have him to. Now, I want you to get this picture very clearly with me. This is, you read that, you may have to read it several times to get the fullness of it like I did. Or you may accept, understand it the first time. It took me a little while to get the whole thing. This is what happened. Joseph, his two sons now. I want you to follow me very carefully because this is important. Manasseh was the older. Ephraim was the younger. So Joseph, because his his father, Jacob, could not see very well, took his two sons and led them up to the bedside of his father, and he put them in the right position. The position was for Manasseh to be in the place that Joseph could reach out his hand and lay his hand on his head and pronounce the blessing. And for Ephraim to be in the place that Joseph or Jacob could reach out his hand and pronounce a blessing, but a lesser blessing, not the blessing of the birthright, on 
Ephraim. So, when Joseph looked and saw those two grandsons, he reached out to touch them, but he put his right hand on Ephraim and his left hand on Mandasa. And that was exactly the opposite of the way it was supposed to be. It wasn't ordained that way. It wasn't planned that way. That wasn't the custom. That wasn't the expectation. Joseph thought his father, in his dimness of sight, had become confused and got the boys mixed up. He had done everything he could to make it very clear and put them in the right place. But Jacob didn't follow what was expected of him. He did something contrary to custom. He did something contrary to the ordinary. He did something contrary to the routine. Expectations, human expectations, were not fulfilled. And Joseph became upset about it. He tried to intervene and stop his father from doing this thing that he knew was a mistake. But Jacob, Israel, a prince with God, had prevailed. And now the Spirit of God is speaking to him about these grandsons, the sons of Joseph. And he brings the prophecy that Father God has intended for them. And so here's what happened. Go back to the picture of those two boys standing there. Manasseh is standing right here. Manasseh is standing right there. Ephraim is standing right there. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's Manasseh. That's Ephraim. I, they look so much alike, I got them mixed up. <laughs> That's Manasseh. <laughs> so this is the way. This is the way Joseph brought them up there. Put Manasseh right there. You see, when it says. When Joseph brought him up, he put his left hand on Manasseh so he could put him at his father's right. So he had his left hand on him, so he puts him up here with his left hand, and the father's right hand is here, you see. And then the contrary, the very opposite left hand uh, uh, brought over here. He put his right hand on Ephraim, the younger, to bring him up to his father's left hand. That's the description that I just read to you. So now Joseph has them standing. Here's Manasseh at, at Jacob's right hand. Here's Ephraim at Jacob's left hand. And so now just go ahead and pronounce the blessing. Put the benefit of the blessing of the firstborn, the birthright, upon Ephraim, the lesser blessing on, uh, what was his name again? Manasseh. This is, this is, you, you see how a lot of people can miss the message. I've got it clearly in my head. It's just putting all these names on But this is it now. Okay, so, so here is Manasseh, the firstborn, at Joseph's right, Jacob's right hand. Here is Ephraim, the second, lesser son, at Jacob's left hand, as it was supposed to be. But the Bible says that when Joseph saw his father moving to bring the blessing upon them, he thought his father was confused because his father reached out with his right hand 
and he laid it on the head of Ephraim, the lesser son. And he took his left hand, that would have constituted the lesser blessing, and he put that on the head of the firstborn son who should have by custom and tradition received the birthright. And the scripture says that in doing so, he crossed his hands. What better picture would you ever see of the cross of Jesus Christ than this example of Jacob, who was Israel, a prince with God, Joseph, his godly son, who had followed the Lord all of his life, now standing there with these two boys to receive the birthright as they were supposed to receive it, as was rightfully expected of by them to receive the greater blessing for the firstborn son and the lesser blessing for the secondborn son. That's the way it's supposed to be. And the way it's supposed to be, my friend, is that you and I are supposed to die under the curse of sin. You and I are supposed to die and go to hell. You and I who have wandered from God and transgressed the law of God and disobeyed God and rebuked Him and resoundingly denied Him, we are supposed to die in sin under the judgment of God and go to hell. But God said, I've got another plan. I'm not going to let it happen that way. It's true I said that was the plan. That sin brings death. And the curse of sin brings hell. But I've made a different alternative. I've made something available to you that is different from anything the world would ever understand. I am not going to give you what you deserve. I'm going to give you what my firstborn. I'm going to give you what the Lamb of Glory. I'm going to give you what the Eternal Son of God. I'm going to give you what the sinless Son of Man sacrificed on the cross has provided for you. I'm not going to let you die under sin. I'm going to bring you the blessing of salvation and healing and victory in heaven forever. So what you and I deserved, what you and I deserved was to have God's hand laid on us. That's it for you. And his hand of victory and blessing and eternal love laid on the Savior. That was, that was what the world would expect. That's what was said was the way it should be. The soul that sins, it shall die. But when God made an eternal plan, when God put together a salvation, a way of salvation, a way of forgiveness, a way of victory, a way of overcoming, a way to get off the road that leads to hell and on the road that leads to heaven and God's glory, when God made a way to do that, he had to make a transfer of the regular order of things. The regular order was what he had said, the souls that sins that will die. When Jesus did not sin, he did not deserve death. But when God allowed him to go to Calvary, he visited that awesome scene. And in that awesome scene, God reached out his hand. It wasn't just the hand of the lesser blessing. It was the hand of the curse of sin and laid it upon the Savior on the cross. So he cried out, Why have you forsaken me? There was a time when Jesus became sin. But at the same time, that was done so that God could provide the greater blessing, not to those of us who deserved it, but to those of us who did not deserve it. So the Bible says it in clear terms. 
This is what Paul wrote to the Corinthians. God has made him who knew no sin the favored, blessed son who knew no sin. God has made him to be sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Glory to God. Glory to God. God sent forth his son in the fullness of time. And when that time had come, and God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, he did it so that he could redeem those of us who were under the law, allowing Jesus to become a curse for us. So it's just this simple. Jesus took your place. Jesus took your place. When you deserved death, he gave you life. When you deserved hell, he gave you heaven. When you deserved judgment, he gave you forgiveness. And he did it because he paid the price. Because God allowed him to take our place. God allowed him to put us in his place. When God crossed his hands... Just as Jacob did in days of old, Jacob was picturing a time when the Savior would come and provide salvation to all men. This is long before the events of Calvary, but it is put there as one jewel embedded in the hillside of history to declare to us one more time, with all the multiple times it's declared to us in the Old Testament, one more little hidden place of truth that says to us, Jesus took our place. Jesus was our substitute. Jesus paid the price for us. He took the curse so that we can have the victory. Hallelujah. Glory to God. And that's when God crossed his hands. And I will tell you today, my friends, right now today, the hands of Father God are still crossed. And you could walk under the hand of God's blessing. Because he died so that you and I could become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I'm asking you to bow your heads with you.